Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Mark chapter 3. I'm reading out of the New King James Version this morning. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, tells us this. It says, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, Footnote, who also betrayed him. And I love how this ends. And they went into a house. This is the word of God for the people of God to which we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word today. Thanks, Jesus, for preserving this call that you gave to your disciples that we might be able to look into it this morning to evaluate our lives according to the same callings that you've given us. What a thrill to know that our lives have calling attached to them. That we're not just left to our own. We're not just stuck in the motion of life. But God, you, even for this year, you have gone before us and you have called us to some things. I pray today, Jesus, that you would help me communicate your call to us. That you'd fill me with your spirit. That you would speak through me. That you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. And may we walk worthy of the calling that you've called us to. So God, speak to us today. That's our desire. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, here on the first Sunday of the decade, the first Sunday of the year, I want to preach this morning from this sermon title. The title of the message today is Collectively Called and resolved, collectively called and resolved. What I want to do this morning is share three New Year's resolutions for our church. Three, or is it New Year resolutions? It depends if they got an English degree or not, but it's probably New Year, but New Year, comma, or apostrophe S, resolutions, okay? New Year's resolutions. Now, I know the, the word resolution, maybe just the idea of New Year's resolution, maybe that's not received well for you, that's not a favorite concept or idea, but let's just back up for a second. The word resolution, understanding what it means, uh, the dictionary definition of the word resolution, to have resolution is to have firm determination towards a course of action. Some of you are thinking about this morning, actually, when we talk about the the church service change, you're you're thinking about getting your kids ready this morning. And at one point going, I don't know if we're going to make it to church this morning, but you got here because you had some resolution. You had firm determination to get your kids up, to get them fed, to get them dressed, to get them in the car. That's 10 minutes right there, just getting in the car. And then getting here, and here we are. Firm determination. Um, this is, for me, personally, I think it's, it's a character trait I have that is, anybody have these character traits that are both strengths and weaknesses? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's the best thing about you and the worst thing about you at the same time. I think resolve is one of those things for me. Like, my wife will tell you, one of the greatest blessings to her soul is when I am set on something. 
whatever it may be. Um, sometimes it can distract me from other uh, you know, important things at this, for the sake of lesser things. Sometimes it can get things done. I'm thinking specifically, as I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think about a time of resolution in our family's life recently. This was earlier last year. One, uh, one Sunday after church, we came home, and there, uh, waiting at our house to greet us as we walk in the door was the most foul odor that you could ever imagine or create. Um, the hard part about this foul odor, odor, though, is the way that it started, remember the day before, was just kind of like a funny smell. Like, oh, that's a funny smell. And we have kids, and they poop. So we're like, okay, there's funny smells in here more than we like. But the next day, that funny smell, it, it, it metamorphosized into something demonic. I mean, you walked in the door, you're like, spiritual warfare is here. It was so bad. It was so bad, all of my kids are gagging. Run, Dad, get in there and fix it outside on the front porch. And what that began was a two-day, two- to three-day search for the source of this rancid scent. Uh, it started first with like a little two-hour investigation, following the trail. Where is it? Is it the garbage? You always think, did you put chicken in the garbage? You know, okay, we take that out, and that's not what it was. And then eventually, my nose found its way to my outside AC unit. And um, it was there. Whatever it was, it was there. You would have known I knew. The flies knew, okay? They were there as well. And so my first course of action is, well, I need to call an exterminator. So I have some friends that are kind of in that field, and they said, that's not my field. Here's a number. So I called some other people, and they said, Here's what they said listen, if it's in your AC area, which I did my best to take that thing apart myself without dying, and I'm here, thank God, but didn't find it myself. So they say, listen, we can't go into your AC unit. You've got to call the AC company to come get it. Okay, so I called the AC company. I said, hey, you know, here's the situation. This is what the exterminator told me. They're like, no, you got to call the exterminator. Like, in other words, we're not coming to get what's ever dead in your AC unit. Okay, you've got to figure that out for yourself. So I call the exterminator, and the best, the best thing that the exterminator could tell me is this. He says, well, you just might have to wait it out. So you want me to live with my children in a home of death for X amount of weeks, years? Who knows? Until the scent of death leaves. That was a professional exterminator's advice. Just let it die and decompose and you'll be good. In other words, um, it'll resolve itself, right? You don't need any resolve. It'll resolve itself. And there's a whole sermon in that, how that's not a good way to approach a lot of things in life, right? That relationship, that issue, whatever that thing is. There's a tendency sometimes in life to lack resolve and just assume that the things in my life that are broken will just fix themselves. But in this case, we knew, <laughs> we knew that we're not, my dad knew too, we're not going to be staying at his house for three weeks. And we knew that we weren't going to cohabitate with this demonic scent. And so the resolve kicked in. And thanks to that and my brother-in-law's ingenuity, we finally came across and discovered what was a dead possum. Don't worry, I'm not going to show you the picture, okay? But it was sitting under my AC vent. This is me ready to take on anything, really. Um, I wasn't sure what was down there, and so I, I, there's a further picture that has it in there that I'm saving you from, but we, we came across, we finally followed the trail, we, we ripped this thing open, and today the good news is uh, that it's, it's scent-free, all right? Uh, just an example there of having firm determination towards a course of action. There was nothing, no advice that could keep me from, I was about to chip the whole wall of my house out to find this thing, and this is what, what, what we get here in our mind's eye when we talk about resolution. Firm determination, 
going towards a course of action. And this is, let me say this, this is a biblical concept. It, it is a biblical concept to have a firm determination towards something. We see this most clearly in the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul talks about having his own resolution in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says this. He says, I resolved not to know anything when I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our idea. Paul is saying about his own life in ministry that he had resolve. That he would, when he would go into a town, when he would come across people and he had an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim Christ to them, that he wasn't going to waste time on peripheral things. He wasn't going to use human wisdom and persuasive speech. He was going to get straight down to the matter, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our message and nothing else. And so Paul said, when I come into a town, I'm determined, I'm resolved in a firm way not to know anything except Jesus and what he has done. Not give you a bunch of things of what you need to do for God, but to proclaim what God has done for you. You see resolve in the life of Paul, and you certainly see it, right? There's a lot of things that could have tested Paul's resolve. In fact, there was. With all that he went through, sticking to his goal, sticking to his resolution. Uh, where do you think Paul learned this? He learned this from his rabbi. He learned this from Jesus. Jesus was a man of resolve, of great resolve. One of the greatest examples of this is found in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is doing life and ministry, and it tells us this in Luke 9, that says that now it came to pass, when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up, look at Jesus' resolution, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So the time had come, it says here, for him to be received up. And that can have a lot of meanings. He was being received up to a higher elevation there in Jerusalem. He would be received up. He read Isaiah 53. He knew that he would be received up and he would die on a cross. And Jesus would be received up into glory at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, knowing what was before him, it tells us that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this is Luke pulling right out of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 50, it speaks of the Messiah setting his face, it says this, like a flint, like a flint. Talk about focus, talk about resolve. A flint stone has the first name Fred, but it also, it also is one of the most rigid, sharp stones that you could come across. If you were to take a stone of flint and you were to dash it against steel, all that would happen is some sparks, and so what this is saying is not that Jesus was all stern and angry and flintstony, okay? What it's saying is that Jesus had resolve in the face of adversity. He was focused. He was determined. In fact, I love the way the NIV says it. It says, as the, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely, there's our word, set out for Jerusalem. Aren't you thankful that Jesus was resolved to go to the cross Aren't you thankful that Jesus was as resolved to win us over despite our lack of resolution to want him? Charles Spurgeon has this great sermon that I would encourage you to look up, all of his sermons, the Prince of Preachers. And one of the messages he, he, he preached was on Isaiah 57, on this idea of Jesus' resolution. And the title of the message is, The Redeemer's Face Set Like a Flint. In the message, Charles Spurgeon observes several of the different tests that Jesus walked through in his resolution. Just think of the life of Jesus and all that his resolution came up against in going to the cross. Uh, how about the, he starts first with the offers from the world. 
Think of the enemy coming before Jesus and tempting him, saying, listen, you could take the hard road, but here's an easy road. What about the persuasion of his friends? Remember Peter? This isn't going to happen to you, Jesus. You're not going to go to the cross. Uh, This one's interesting. Spurgeon says, thirdly, um, what about the unworthiness of his clients? I think that's so funny. The unwor- like, if I, I think for us, that's where we tend to lose our resolve often. We're like, you're not really. I've tried unworthy client, okay? I've tried. I mean, there's times where Jesus would look on and go, how much longer must I bear with you? I mean, there's many reasons you look on to go. There's, they're not reciprocating. But Jesus was still resolved. How about this? By the ease at which he could have backed out of if he wanted to. When they said to him, hey, why don't you, if you're God, take yourself off the cross. We know that was the greatest display of meekness in the history of the world. Power under control? What humility to have all the power in the world that's giving the very life and oxygen to the mouth that's cursing you and is restrained there with resolve. How about the taunts of those who mocked him? Many reasons to give up. And then lastly, how about the full stress and agony of the cross? Spurgeon goes through all of these different obstacles to the the resolve of our Savior, but we see Jesus prevailing. Now, this is, again, the biblical template for what we're called to as well. Resolution's a biblical idea, to set our face, to be focused on a goal. But though it is biblical, we must say this, biblical resolution differs greatly from cultural resolution cultural resolution. We know it's the time of year where with the gift of a new year, many people are going back to the drawing board and they are renewing their resolve and they're saying, I didn't do it in 2019, but 2020 is going to be my year. New year, new me. That tends to be the mantra. A new year, a new me. That's kind of the mindset and often that's the perspective. I tried really hard last year. It didn't work out, but here I get a new shot at doing my best. That's not biblical resolve. See, biblical resolve doesn't say, hey, I have a new year, so now I'm going to be determined. Biblical resolve sees the fact that I have been made new in Jesus. And with, listen to this, this is important. You see, certainly the Bible teaches that every day his mercies are new. And this is great news for us as children of God. Isn't it good news to know that every day that you open your eyes, you have a clean slate before you? You have a clean slate behind you. You have a clean record between you and God. There's no greater catalyst for resolution than knowing you're forgiven fully forgiven, fresh start, certainly with the new year. But what the gospel says is that you're new. I'm new. We are new creations, and we're being made new. And so here's where our resolution comes from. As those who are new, a perpetual clean slate, we have been given some new callings in life. We've been called into, and we've been called towards some new things as new creations in Christ. The way Peter says in 1 Peter is that we were once not a people, but we are now the people of God who should proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, that's who the church is, the church in Greek. Not a building, not a middle school, not an organization. A church is not a 501c3 nonprofit organization. A church is not a pastor or a preacher or a program. A church is a redeemed community of called out people who have been saved by Jesus, made new, and collectively called into some whole new things. A whole new way of life. The idea, again, is being collectively called, you see it now, and resolved. Our resolve comes from some new callings we've received. And we see those here in Mark chapter 
3. Just like us as the church, what a great picture here in the passage we read about being collectively called. That's what this is. We know with the disciples that they have separate individual callings to follow Jesus. And we all have received individual calls. But do we understand and do we see it this way as well, that we as the church, we as a community have been called together to some things. And Jesus calls these disciples, giving us what those things are. So let's walk through these. Let's look at these three callings that Jesus gives the disciples and some resolutions that we can attach to these collective callings. The first one, write this one down. The first and foremost one is solitude. Number one, solitude, spending time alone with God. Our first resolution, as the disciples are called, it tells us this in verse 13. It says, and he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and it says he called to him those he himself wanted. I just love that thought, the fact that God wants us. That's amazing. Why would he? I mean, he he says, I want you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. That's just a beautiful joy that will well up in you when you know that God chose you. He loves you. He wants you. And he wanted them to come to him, so they called him. he called them to himself. And then look at verse 14. Then he appointed the twelve. It says this, key, key phrase here, that they might be with him. With him. I love that, that Mark says this is the first reason uh, why Jesus called the disciples. This is the first call, that, the collective call that he gave the church. He says, I'm calling you, and I'm not calling you to, come, to go out and just primarily do a bunch of things for me. The first call that Jesus gave the, his new apprentices, his disciples, he says, I want you to come, and here's why, so that you can be with me. To be with me. I mean, think about the gospel in that perspective. The gospel is the work of Jesus that we might be with God. Withness. Now, the idea here of withness, I love this word, and it's a word. I found it out. It's a word, okay? It's like witness with an H. Withness. It's just fun to say, and it feels good, okay? Withness. So would you with it with me? Withness, okay? Withness. Uh, the idea of withness here, Jesus calling the disciples to himself, is not just about proximity. It's not like, hey, you're over there, and you need to be right here, okay? And everywhere I walk, I need to look behind and single-file line disciples. Make sure you're with me, okay? Buddy system here. Who's the caboose? Judas, of course, right? Now, listen. The witness here is not about proximity. Listen, witness is about relationship. Proximity because of relationship. A great example of this is, is I think, my son. My son, Judah. Anytime we're in a public place where he doesn't know people. Now, if he knows you, he's already your best friend, okay? I'm ha- happy to share my son with you as, as your best friend. He loves to be everyone's best friend. But if Judah is in an environment where he doesn't know people, do you know where he instantly finds himself? Right here. Right at my right leg. Right by my side. He wants to be right next to dad. That proximity, that withness, is a picture of his security in our relationship. Now we need to see this. Listen. We need to see this as the primary thing that has once and for all been restored to us through Jesus. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Sorry, let me put this up there. There it, there it is. All things are of God. Notice this, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Reconciled, brought back together, restored the withness. The idea here is that withness was broken. 
It was broken. You look at the Garden of Eden, you know, you have Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, perfect withness. And this withness, this connection and relationship to God, it's the source of all life. It's the source of all power to walk and be with God, to know God in close relationship and proximity. So what do we see sin being? We see sin being going outside of those boundaries. Not just what you do, but where you go. You detach from the Father. You become your own isolated authority. And that's where everything breaks down. And the consequences of this are certainly monumental. It's the fall of man. Listen, it's what's wrong with the world. And that might be as VBS as it gets. But it's more deep and true than anything else. The biggest issues in your and my life, the biggest issues in this world is either a lack or the extent of our connection with God, our relationship with God. That's where everything flows from. And listen, this is what Jesus came to restore. You see Jesus on the cross being cut off from the Father so that we would never be. So that we who were cut off would be brought into close proximity forever. And so here's the promise Jesus makes to us. He says to his disciples, I am always going to be with you. Isn't that awesome? You can't shit God off your tail. He won't. Like, you can't annoy him to the point where he's like, okay, I'm done. You can't annoy him. Maybe you go, that's annoying. It's not. It's great, right? There's nothing you can do to make God go away. Nothing. He's with you. That's the good news of the gospel. But how many of us know that there's a difference between someone being with us and us being with them? Notice the call of Jesus. He called them that they might be with him. He's going to tell them, I'm always going to be with you. But listen, I'm calling you to have withness with me, to come close to me. I think of um, the other night, Brittany and I went out to a dinner date. We had a gift card for Christmas, and we made our way to Louis Bossies, okay, once a year. All right, we save up and we go. And there we are, and first time out in a little while, and um, here's the resolve weakness thing, I guess, kicking in. But yeah, it definitely was, actually, now that I think about it. Um, we're there sitting, and walking by my table, we're sitting there, and a celebrity, male celebrity actor, you'll know why in a second, I don't know who he is, but he walks, it's like, you, ever, you know that happens? You're like, that's that guy. Does that happen to you all the time, like me? I just see celebrities all the time, Okay. This is my life. I just run into celebrities. And so he walks by, and, I'm, and I go, it's like right when he I'm like, Brittany, that's him, that guy. What's he from? I'm like, I don't know. And so now commences about 10 to 15 minutes of me looking up random names of actors that come in. Robert Redford? No, that's a different guy. I still don't know who he was. I know he was famous, okay? And there's a point where Brittany, she's so patient, she's playing along, and then it's kind of like, Hey, date night, right? <laughs> Celebrity though. You know, no, I'm just kidding. All right, but no, of course, right? See, Brittany was with me, but I wasn't with her. I was somewhere else. Does that describe your relationship with God? You know he's with you. But have you answered the call to be and do life with him? to be present. His proximity is there, but is your presence there? Is your state of mind there? That's what Jesus is calling us to. Now, Jesus does more than call us to this. He models this for us so well. He came to restore that relationship with the Father, but we, we see this in the very life of Jesus. Jesus 
um, it tells us this in the Gospel of Luke, that, that it was his custom. Look at the last verse. It was often his custom to withdraw to lonely places and pray, right? This was just common for the life of Jesus. Solitude, getting alone with the Father. Notice when, too. It says the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came near to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So there's all these demands. There's all this stuff happening. There's every reason for Jesus to say, I can't right now, Lord. I've got things to do for you. I can't really be with you. But it was the custom of Jesus to make an effort to withdraw to lonely places reading a book right now that's talking about just what this idea means of, of quiet places, of secret places, of being alone with the Father. And even in this book I'm reading, it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And John Mark Comer talks about even a, a time in Jesus' life where um, the demands of life actually did keep even Jesus. And there's times it kept Jesus from being with the Father. And there's times where, listen, this is just hard, right? Like right now you're going, yeah, okay, alone with the Father, but quiet time at 5 a.m., is catching up on the sleep I lost because my crying toddler was up all night. And, and there's seasons where you really have to fight for solitude. But that doesn't mean we don't fight. We don't fight. I mean, if Jesus did this, right? If it was essential to the life and the success and the ministry of Jesus to practice solitude, being alone with his Father, don't you think we will? Of course. This is where witness is experienced. Uh, there's a great example of this even in Mark 1. So same book, a chapter or two to the left. Look at what it says. Mark 1, right back in your Bibles, verse 35. It says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus went out and he departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. So you see Jesus doing this even in uh, Mark's gospel. And Simon and those who were with him, I love this, they searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Okay, now that might be a little bad if like mom, you leave the kids are like, where's mom? Where's mom? Let's go in the pool. Okay, no, like we got to be careful here. Okay, now, now this idea, it kind of picks, paints that picture though of Jesus disappearing. Where did he go? And they said, notice what they said. Everyone is looking for you. You ever felt like that? <laughs> Everyone is needing something from me. Everyone is messaging me. How many text messages do I have to get back to? Everyone's looking for me. I got to call this person back. I got to accomplish that deadline. And listen, the demands of life didn't keep Jesus from what he most desperately needed. Being alone with the Father. It was his custom. And notice as he comes out of that, Mark 1, 38, he says, and he said to them, let us go into the next towns. I love that. So everybody here wants you. Jesus goes, spends time with the Father. There's demands all around him. But now he comes out of that quiet time with the Father. And he says, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. Because for this purpose, I have come forth. You see this? Jesus finds his assignments in the quiet place. He, he, th by the way, this is key. If you want in your life to have your life directed by the Father and not the Spirit, or sorry, by the Father and the Spirit and not the demands of life. If we want the Father and the Spirit to be directing us and not the demands of life, we've got to be alone with him. We've got to know what he's called us to say yes and to say no to. And that's what we see in the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus also taught us this, right? Ma Matthew 6, but you, when you pray, I love this, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, modern translation of that is when you have shut your phone off. Okay, when you deleted the app. Took a break. Me and Instagram right now are in a complicated relationship. Um, haven't spoken to Instagram in a couple days. Um, just there's some stuff we got to work out. So we're taking some time apart. All right, just want you to know that. All right, I'm sorry if I haven't DM'd you back. Um, 
But that's where this really gets practical for me. Go in your room, because you can shut your door and still have everybody calling your attention in this technological age, right? So close the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. He calls us to this kind of solitude. I love how the NLT says it. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Sorry, wrong, wrong translation. Here it is. Almost there. Third time's a charm. I'm talking about technology is cursed. Look at this. See, perfect. Found it. There it is. Check it out. When you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father. I think this word is so interesting in the NLT. In private. In private. So this is Jesus. Where is he? We can't find him. He has a private relationship with his Father. That's the question I want to ask you this morning. Do you have a private relationship with God? A private relationship with God. Now, growing up in the church, I heard that this was a bad thing. I was taught that. Anybody else? I actually have heard this taught in church. Ready? Christianity is a personal relationship. It's not a private relationship. And often the sentiment of that is to say this. Hey, you should be bold with your faith. You shouldn't keep Christianity to yourself. You should be public with your faith. It's a personal relationship. It's not a private relationship but Jesus says that it's a private rela- it is a private relationship. In fact, the public fruit is just the result of a private relationship. I mean, if you're, if you're like struggling to be bold in public, check your quiet time. I mean, it all flows from that. Christianity, I would say this, is first and foremost a private relationship. Where you close the door, it's between you and God. And think back, listen, I know right now you're going, I used to have that. You're new in Christ. New year, but you're new in Christ. Let's be resolved to pursue that again. We got these reading plans that are going to be a great, I think, blessing to our church to get the most out of our time in God's word. We're even going to include a little um, study method to help you really hear from the Spirit, to be alone with the Lord, but a private relationship with God. Listen, there's no substitute for this. Because in any relationship, true, of course, of marriage, there is no intimacy without privacy. You know what I'm saying? Okay? It's true in, in a lot of different ways. I mean, think about even just the other night. Brittany and I were in a public place, but we were able to be private with our, with our conversation, with our connection, despite all the hustle and bustle, when she finally zeroed me in. We were able to connect and look into each other's eyes and have that FaceTime. There's no substitute with that in your relationship with God. Can I tell you something? Sunday morning is great. We need to gather with the church. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to worship Jesus together to show the world that we've all been saved by him. But Sunday will never hold water to what your solitude with God will. And if right now you're struggling in a relationship, I've seen this happen where people are like jumping from church to church to church looking for the perfect church. It's like, do you have a quiet time? No. The church is not going to fix your problem. It's just not. Like, you should find a healthy church. Okay, a little footnote. That's good. Find a good church. Bible teaching. Jesus. Okay, but look. Like, if you go to a restaurant once a week, you don't have any right, and like, you don't eat the other times of the week. It's not fair to you to go to that restaurant and be like, you're not feeding me enough. It's like, we gave you a full portion, you know? It's like, well, it's the only time I'm eating once a week. That's, that's not going to sustain you. See, Jesus has called us to witness, relationship with him. It's the only thing that's going to get us through our days. Look at this next one. The next resolution is community, doing life with each other. So it starts with solitude. 
It says that he calls them to be with them. But notice it again. He called them to himself. That they might be with him. Isn't that interesting? So he models connection with the Father in solitude. But then he calls them to know him together in community. A collective call. He lists all their names there. We see this collective call of these disciples. At one point it was an individual call. Jesus here is saying, follow me as my apostles together. To do life together. That's the second resolution as we go into this year. First in my heart is I pray that we as a church would prioritize solitude with Jesus. Fighting for that time to be with the Father, to know him in secret and private. Second is that we would follow Jesus together. That's, that's, you guys know this is like the drum that, I'm always, that we're always beating here. Because we really believe that the church is not a service you attend, it's a community you're a part of. It's so essential. It was essential for the disciples to, to not just attend church, but here's the classic cliche, but it's true, to actually do life together. To do life and all that that includes. Life is loaded with successes and failures, with victories and adversity, with challenges and, and, and hard times and, and blessing and good times. We have the good things about us. We have the ugly things about us. Everything in life, the, the, the will of God for us as a church is that we would go through those things together. He called the disciples to him together. And here's a few reasons why this is so vital. Um, and specifically three. Uh, spiritual growth, healing grace, and relational grit. These are, I think, three essentials for why Jesus calls us to follow him together. Uh, his vision for us is so much more than just coming to church. It's one thing to go to church. It's another thing to know the church, right? And to walk together. And here's why. In God's vision, first, spiritual growth, man. Uh, this is just true that you cannot become all that you are called and meant to be by yourself. Um, your, your growth is stunted when you are in isolation. And isolation doesn't mean that you don't come to church. It means that you're not in community. It means people don't really know you, that you're not giving the time of day to not just let your, show your good side, but we all have a Darth Vader side. We all have the weaknesses that, that God is sanctifying us through that he has intended community to help pull those things out of us. How many of you guys know this? There's things about you that you didn't know were there, the good, bad, and the ugly, until you got into a relationship. And you're like, oh. Like when you first start dating your girlfriend or your, husband or your, your boyfriend and you get married, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of selfish. <laughs> didn't know that when I was single. Right? Scripture is always calling us to take inventory, check stock, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to, God, uh, dead indeed to sin, alive to God. Those things, they start to surface in community. This is God's will for us, that we would be transformed in community. I just want to read you what Ephesians 4 says. Paul says it this way. He says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. A lot of us are like this in isolation. We're our own authority, our own teacher. We're tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. It blows our ways. We get caught up in the thinking, whatever it is. By the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. It's usually the enemy behind that. But listen to this. Here's the vision. Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. From whom the whole body, the whole thing, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its chair, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What a vision for church. What a vision. Can I tell you, this is church. That's church. The most transformative moments in my life did not come from sitting under a sermon. I care about sermons. As I say that in my sermon, okay? 
but the most transformative experience I've had are from people who have surrounded me, who have loved me and knew me and loved me enough to say, Andrew, that's gonna be your downfall. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You can't get that by just attending a church service. It's not God's will for us. Spiritual growth, it's so essential. How about this also, healing grace. Um, healing grace. What grace does, it heals. Jesus calls these disciples together for spiritual growth, but notice these dudes that he called. We, 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 see, we see their names listed there. We get to know these guys quite a bit in Scripture, and here's what we see, that this is not an all-star cast of Navy SEALs for Jesus. Like, in the first pick, in the Jesus draft, I mean, like, if you're looking at it that way, everyone's going, you just picked a no-round guy. I mean, he wasn't even in any round. I mean, the guys that Jesus picked, here's, you ready? here's the good news for us. They were tremendously broken and tremendously flawed, a.k.a. the church. Beautifully, this beautiful picture of whole in Christ, what Christ has done, justified us, made us new. But then he, David says, what you desire is a broken and a contrite heart breaks us, sanctifies us in our humility, it changes us as things come out. And that's certainly what happens in this community of these disciples, just like any church. Uh, the Proverbs say that where there is no ox, the trough is clean. Right? And I say this often, right? The, the modern translation is where there is no teenager, the bedroom is clean. Where there are no children, the minivan is, cre- is clean. Where there are no people, the church is clean. But this is life. Jesus, and Jesus, I love that Jesus says, come, just as you are. I'm going to cover you in my love, and I'm going to sanctify you in my love. It's been so well said that he loves us so much to take us as we are. That's how much he loves us. But he loves us even more so not to leave us as we are. And how we come to him often as we are, let me say it this way, is broken and in shame. I mean, that's really what's at the root of what sin has caused separation between us and God, but separation emotionally, spiritually, there's shame. It's a cloud of every one of us because of sin, unless we, unless we ignore it, we, we have a clown. We have a cloud of, of shame. We have this thing that we carry that we're, and listen, that's, that's the result of sin, shame. There's only one cure for shame, experiencing grace. The only thing that cures shame is to experience the grace of God. And most of how that's experienced, can I tell you, like experiencing it and knowing it is two different things. Like you go, I know the grace of God. I can give you 10 points about what the cross is and why it's God's unmerited love for me, you know? Grace. No, experiencing it. See, the way that God has it laid out is he looks at the church. The church is to be a community of people who have each individually experienced grace in their lives. And therefore, we can become a culture of grace to people around us. So you come in as you are right now with all your brokenness. We got our things that Jesus is working on us for. And you come as you are and we say, listen, it's okay. There's room at the table for brokenness because of grace. And listen, people are transformed when the church is a community of grace and not law. When it's really people that have known Jesus. I think of the famous Chuck Smith, uh, the famous pastor of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, and the great story of, of the revival that was taking place. And they, they were filling out houses in the 60s and, and churches with hippies. And they were coming to hear the gospel be taught and be transformed. And you had all these uptight church people. And the biggest complaint they had was every Sunday, listen, Chuck, it's really great that you're reaching out to these, these hippies for Jesus. But um, they come in every week f- fresh off the beach, dirty, and look at the carpets. 
you could tell there's an afterglow, okay, of this gathering in the carpet. And there's dirt, and there's, it's, just, Chuck, it's, it's just not working out. And Chuck's response is, okay, then rip out the carpets. I love that. Let's accommodate that. Let's show grace to that. Let's not say, get your act together. No, because that's not how Jesus has been with us. The only true power to heal from our shame is grace experienced in community. And then I also said this, relational grit. Relational grit. Um, you look at these different guys that he called together, and they are all from different sides of, of all sorts of spectrums, politically, religiously, morally. You even have different demographics and ethnics, uh, ethnicities, even different representatives of, of different uh, towns and stuff. It's, it's really interesting how Jesus, and I love this, Jesus is the one that calls them together. Like, it's really interesting that it doesn't say, you know, Jesus doesn't go, hey, Peter, you're in charge, pick the team. You got it, Peter. I mean, because we know what Peter would have done. He would have done what we all do. If these are the, the 11 guys that I'm going to spend the next three years of my life with, I'm going to be very wise about who I select. Okay? You, no, you, not you, you. You know what I'm saying? Like including some and excluding some. But here's something important about church. Like we don't get to do that. We don't get to go, well, I like that personality type. Now we, we can. We, here, and by the way, we do. We do do this. We exclude some people. We cut them off the second they're challenging. And we include the ones that are, are easy and are smooth. Okay, so if we're speaking sandpaper talk, high amount of grit, I think, is the high, higher number, the more firm? Lee, help me out. No? You get what I'm saying, though, right? Exactly. Can you come up here and finish this message for me, bro? <laughs> the lower, the smoother? The higher, the smoother. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> this is community right here. That's what that is. The higher the grit, right? Smooth. Now, some of us, we like that. We don't, we don't like a lot of grit, and that's easier. And you can have your easy, shallow life. That's what that is. The harder grit, it might be more difficult, but it's producing something greater for us. You can have the easy road with shallow relationships, or you can come into this beautiful mess called the church that says, come as you are. You don't get to pick who gets to be here. By the way, you're not that great either. You, people actually have problems with you. Did you know that? And let's, let's all do this together and let's grow in love, right? Not superficial that says, hey, God bless you, brother. Awkward two-minute mingle. But something that actually says, I love you through what you're going through, doing life together. Amen? Amen. And I want to close with this last thing. Uh, the first question that we were led to ask ourselves is, do you have a private relationship with God? The second question we were led to ask ourselves is, are you doing life with Jesus in community? In a few weeks, we're going to talk about our different ministry opportunities and community opportunities to experience growth and grace and grit. But the last thing that I want us to ask ourselves, and I'll, I'll start my last point here with this question. Are you going where Jesus has sent you? As you go into this new year, are you going where Jesus has sent you? This is the third resolution for our year, and it's the resolution of mission. It's going daily with gospel purpose. Going daily with gospel purpose. It's spending time alone with Jesus. Let's keep this simple. Three things. We're going to spend, let's resolve this year, because we've been called to spend time alone with Jesus. Let's resolve to do life together in community. Let's resolve to live daily live daily, to go daily with gospel purpose. Notice the last thing. It says that Jesus appointed them to be with them in verse 14, that he might send them out to preach. 
and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And he sends these disciples out. Now, what's interesting here, first it needs to be said this way, um, that Jesus always brings us in for the purpose of sending us out. This is what he does. The, the closer you get to him, the more sent out you live. It's amazing how that works. It's like centripetal force or something, okay? The closer you get, he brings us in, not to depart from him, but it starts to flow out of us to the world around us, into our workplaces. We start to live sent lives. So he calls them to himself, and he sends them out. But I want you to notice this. He sends them out, and then I love the last verse, and they went into a house. Sent into the mission field, but they went into a house. Now, I don't think Mark is just letting us know, hey, there were houses back then, they went into one. It's like, in the Greek, is it of pancakes or something? I mean, like, okay. I thought you'd think that was funnier. It's okay, though. Um, the, the point that he's saying this is, is being sent isn't about where you go. Sends them out, and they go into a house. See, being sent is not about where you go. It's not about location. It can be. It can be. Some of you guys right now, you're navigating a call that God has given you. He sent you somewhere. Maybe that's what it is, to leave where you're at and go somewhere else. It might be down the street. It might be across the world. But we see here with the disciples, being sent wasn't about where they're going. It was about how they were going. How they were going. Going. I'm sending you out. And listen, as they went back to the house, they were sent. There's this new trajectory to their lives. There's this new purpose to their lives because Jesus attached a mission. He sent them. You're a sent people. Now, this is also what Jesus has done for the church. It's at the end of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus will say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go. And notice how he sends them with power. Same thing, too, for the church. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the church brought in together as a community, sent out as a missional community to reflect who God is. God is a community, Father, Son, and Spirit, living on mission. And he sent us out as a church to be the same way, to go in power to proclaim the gospel, to be sent now, it's really important to understand why this happens, why there's a mission. There's a mission because there's a God. That, that's why, first and foremost. A lot of times you hear churches, I feel like today, and, and a lot of the emphasis is on, like, what's our mission? Like, what, what are we doing? And there's time for that. We did that recently where we said, okay, Lord, what's the language that you've called us to express our mission? But I think it was, it was best said by John Piper, who said that the church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. I love that idea. You see, Jesus had a mission. Before there was a church and disciples, uh, the, gospel, uh, the Gospel of Luke tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Like, this is his mission. This is God's mission. The church and we are those, those who have been rescued by him and found by him. We are the means through which he's going to reach more people. He reaches through the reach. He brings forgiveness through the forgiven. And so think about your life. Think about the sphere. Maybe ask yourself this question. Where has God sent you? Where has he sent you? I mean you. Like, it's your mission. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Where? Where, where have you been called to go? And remember this. Going into all the world, it doesn't mean, you know, missions trip. Every day is a missions trip with Jesus. Right? So in your going, where has he sent you? 
The question is, are you going? Are you going? And I think the key here is the power of Jesus. He wants to give us power to live sent lives. You go, man, I, I've been sent into my workplace. I've been sent into my neighborhood. I've been sent to raise my kids. I've been sent into my school. But Jesus gives us more than a purpose. He gives us power. He says, here's my power. I want to empower you by my spirit. It's not going to be your strength. It's not going to be how smart you are. It's not going to be you showing off you know, how much you know to people. It's going to be my power. And you see that in the book of Acts. You, you see, Jesus was not kidding when he said, my power is going to come upon you. Church, if you receive my power, it'll change things. If you, if you stop trusting in flesh and start trusting in God, say, God, you help me. I don't have the boldness. That's okay. You don't. You don't. But Jesus does, and he wants to give it to you. I love that. You read Acts. You see the disciples. Man, their resolve was tested. But they would pray, and the Spirit would fill them. And they would have a renewed boldness to proclaim Christ. These are our resolutions. Collectively called, and I pray this year we are resolved towards these three goals. That we would be resolved this year to spend time alone with Jesus. Solitude. Let's be alone with Jesus. Let's prioritize that. Figure that out for yourself. And especially, and we're going to talk about this next week, but like even with the Bible reading plan, don't get weird and legalistic about it. Like, let's stop that. Okay, let's mature past that. So if you don't spend time with Jesus tomorrow, don't give up. You know what I'm saying? Like, just keep going back. Understand the grace that's available to you. Let's spend time alone with Jesus. Let's do life in community. Let's do more than go to church. Let's know the church. And let's live sent lives. What an amazing opportunity to be sent by the power of the living God. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that awesome? What if we believe that and live that way? Amen? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.